So all I want you to do is look at these two cards and tell me which one you think is better. Um, the better one is the Bane Slayer Angel. Right off the bat, I'm very impressed with the fish. I think I go with Bane Slayer Angel as the better card. Mm -hmm. Because she's got a really big sword and wings. The and other one's also got wings. Oh, is that what those are? Okay. But it doesn't have a sword. <laughs> I like the color and the wings and how it turns into butterflies. But it turns into butterflies? It does. Or it turns into fire. Wow, I never I never noticed that and I've looked at that card a thousand times. I like the graphics better. I think the colors have better contrast. I like that it has a sword and a weapon. And she's got God on her side. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> the mole drifter doesn't have a prayer. And this cool dangling outfit of this woman, I assume. I like her bright boobs. I like her long hair. I like her big sword. This seems pretty badass. It seems like a modern rendition of Starry Night with like a very cool demon slaying angel in front of the sky. Which, and she's got a little M21 next to her name. That looks important. I don't like the mole drifter as much, and I think the reason is because of the eyelashes. I don't know what the two out of two versus five out of five is, but uh, five out of five seems better. She's a evil smiter. Okay, which one do you think is a better card? Oh, better, stronger? Yeah. Oh, Bane Slayer Angel, because she's got a giant ass sword and this is a fish. Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Anthony, owner of many different varieties of soy sauces, Maddox. Just the normal amount of soy sauces. How many is it under this roof right now? I think about eight, probably. Eight unique soy sauces. Eight definitely tops. I have some redundancy. You know, you got to have a backup soy sauce. I have four, but two of them are gifts from you. So, really, I have... That's like barely any soy sauce. That can't be true. You've got to have a dark soy sauce. Don't think so. Oh, man. I could be wrong. We might have a cheap bottle floating around somewhere for the fifth one, some possibly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But pretty much just four. I don't know how you get by. I mean, that's just crazy. I love regular soy sauce. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. By regular soy sauce, I of course mean the expensive soy sauce. Very expensive soy sauce. But it is the it is the normal flavor and variety of soy sauce. You and I both buy soy sauce from themalamarket.com, which I'm happy to promote as much as possible. They haven't given us any money. They haven't given us any sponsorship. (laughs) But uh, they have given Uh, us a lot of soy sauce. Really good soy sauce, and it feels ridiculous the first time you spend forty dollars on a bottle of soy sauce. But you can't go back. You just can't. You're stuck. Got it's very you, true. Got you forever. It genuinely makes me want to get sushi more that we have that soy sauce in the cafe. Sure. I'm yeah. like, that's an excuse to mm-hmm. eat a bunch of soy sauce. Sushi is also delicious. Although you are mixing Chinese soy sauce with Japanese cuisine, but... <laughs> oh, the worst kind of pedant. Uh-huh. Yep. Speaking of the worst kind of pedant, Anthony, on this episode of Lucky Paper Radio, we are talking about... Drum roll. Baneslayers and mole drifters. Are you sure this is a safe idea? Yeah. I mean, what, what could go wrong? Uh... The internet could get mad at us. No, they can't get mad at us. It's been a long time since we talked about Bane Slayers and Muldrifters in the show. We're always getting new listeners. It's entirely possible somebody has been listening to this show and has never heard us talk about Bane Slayers and Muldrifters. And we have to remedy that on this episode, I think, Anthony. Okay. Before we get to that electrifying topic, though, we have a pack one, pick one from a listener-submitted cube. This week's cube comes to us from 123JHD, and it is a cube called Crimson Hunt that uh, he says over email is basically the collection of some leftovers from commander decks and recent sets that he's kind of cobbled together into a cube for the first time this is not a full 360 cards and so instead of doing a normal pack one pick one we're going to do a grid draft instead because uh one two three jhd says that uh, he often plays this with just two players i'm not sure if he's grid drafting but that's the two player draft format we have available to us on cube cobra so that's what we're going to do anthony should you mention what a grid draft is Yeah, so quickly, for those that don't know, a grid draft is a face-up draft format where you arrange nine cards in a three-by-three grid, and each of the two players participating in the draft each get to take a row or column from that grid. 
So the first player has, you know, six choices, either one of the three rows, one of the three columns. Second player has five choices. Some of those choices will only have two cards in them, but sometimes it's worth it to take the two card row. It's a really interesting format because you're making multiple picks at once. And so you oftentimes making decisions you don't make in other kinds of draft formats. Like, is it better for me to get two C pluses from my deck or this one a minus with two cards I'm never going to play, which is it's a cool kind of decision to make. Yeah, it's easily my favorite way to draft a cube with two players. It's just it's a lot of fun. and You get really interesting decisions, like you're saying. Maybe a little harder to follow over audio format, but I will read them in order and I'll kind of like we'll talk through the rows and columns we're considering and hopefully that will paint enough a picture. And you can follow the link in the show notes. We always have a page that lists every single card that we've mentioned in the episode so you can follow along. And I will uh, hold myself accountable to actually build a little grid draft component for this episode as well so you can see exactly what we're looking at. Podcasts are so important to just force yourself to do a thing because uh, that's the only reason I published that lands article is because we recorded a whole podcast about it and I was like, well... If I don't publish it, then we have no podcast to air on Monday. So I guess I got to do that. So you can go see Anthony's beautiful grid draft viewer on our website. So here's the pack. It is Shipwreck Sifters, Duel for Dominance, Finned Horn Elves. Row two is Firmament Sage, Dracula Lord of Blood, which is a renamed version of Valdaran Bloodcaster, Tragic Fall. And then the third and final row is Windscarred Crag, Light the Way, and Burn the Accursed. How many of these rows or columns are in contention for you, Anthony? So one of the things I'm looking at is just how how do I maximize cards that are just in the same color pair or in the same theme? Maybe early in the draft, that's not super critical, but still something I'm looking at. If we go with the first row, we have two green cards, Duel for Dominance, which is like a, a hunt the week for just two mana, but a little bit contextual. That's sometimes hunt the week. If, yeah, if you can actually get Coven. Fintorn Elves, which is... <laughs> uh, hunt the thing and find out if it's weak afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Fintorn Elves, which is obviously very powerful. So that row is standing out with two pretty solid green cards. But I think I'm a little bit more interested in this middle row with Dracula and Tragic Fall. So a, a powerful threat and a good removal spell. I think Dracula is the best card in the pack on its own. I don't have much of a sense of this environment, but I, I'm not as high on Fintorn Elves in lower power environments. Basically, as the power level goes down, I am less interested in rushing out a three or four drop because those cards are less likely to just kind of take over the game unanswered. So I like Dracula here as I think the most powerful card, the card I'm most drawn to. So I'm also looking at that center row, Firmament Sage, which is a card I'm not particularly excited about, to be perfectly honest. Dracula, Lord of Blood is the card I am excited about. It's pulling me into that row. And then Tragic Fall. I could honestly see going for that column as well, which would give you Duel for Dominance and Dracula. Uh, if you rate that fight spell as high or higher than a Tragic Fall, which I don't, but you could possibly see that. Tragic Fall, just to make sure we're clear, again, we're not going to read all the rules text for all the cards, but Tragic Fall is different from Tragic Slip. This is the one that's a two-mana instant that gives minus three, minus three as a baseline, and then has Hellbent, get rid of pretty much anything in the game. Yeah, Tragic Slip, I think, is a little bit more situational. It's still a card that I like, but Tragic Fall, I feel like the, the Hellbent is kind of extra. I just am expecting this to kill most things at minus three, minus three. For sure. So the other... Consideration for me is actually the last column, which is Finhord Elves, Tragic Fall, and Burn the Accursed. Burn the Accursed, not as appealing of a removal spell. It is five mana, but it is still removal. And uh, in an environment where the power level is lower, I, I really value removal spells. I just want to be able to remove the powerful cards my opponent has. And I'm seeing a decent power level disparity in this pack alone. Like Firmament Sage, Light the Way are kind of less powerful cards. And then if I do think Dracula has a high ceiling, it's potentially a very powerful so that's my other consideration. Uh, I'm not particularly on the Finhorn Elves Duel for Dominance road. I think both those green cards are kind of replaceable. The other column that I think is worth mentioning is in the first column, we do have two blue cards with Shipwreck Sifters and Firmament Sage. I think looking at the list a little bit, doing a little bit of filtering, both those are a little bit too conditional having either spirits or flip cards that you want to flip with the Firmament Sage. And I don't know if there's a density uh, of those for them to reach the power level of just an efficient removal spell. So ultimately for me, I'm going to take the middle row with Dracula, Firmament Sage, and Tragic Fall because I like starting on two powerful black cards. And honestly, Dracula seems like a bit of a build around and I want to get it early so I can prioritize the blood cards to make it really shine. I will defend the idea of starting on a row or column with three different color cards because to me, that's kind of the equivalent of staying open, right? Like if you're in a regular draft, you only get one pick, right? So you're just going to take the best card in the pack. Staying open would be like, don't get a gold card first or don't, you know, start on a seven drop or whatever. 
Here, given that you get three cards, I, you could argue that getting like three very solid playables is better in terms of staying open than just taking a really powerful black card and a removal spell in black as well. I don't know if I agree that staying open makes sense in a grid draft in the same way because it is a face-up draft format. It's not like there's, you know, the sea of hidden information and I'm trying to suss out what our players not taking, you know, figure figure out what the open lane is. I can just take these black cards and continue taking black cards and my opponent can't really do anything about that. Uh, I would argue they definitely can. Yeah. It's entirely it's, possible. It's very complex. <laughs> I, mean, I, I do think that staying open still totally matters in grid draft, I think. It is different, for sure, than in a regular draft, because it is face-up information. But, you know, theoretically, the next pack could have two even better black cards, which your opponent is not going to say, okay, I'm going to give you these two amazing cards for your deck. They're just going to take the two best cards in that pack. The third pack could have nothing for you in black, and the fourth pack could have two amazing black cards again. And then now you're the person that has fewer good black cards, even though you started into that color first. Yeah, I feel like often in grid draft, I end up sharing one color with my opponent, uh, which Maybe is this weird. Is why. Maybe but you gotta it, stay yeah, open better. I think. Well, I think a big part of it is hate drafting does matter in this in this format. It's because it's a two players playing the decks are drafting against each other. It is a zero sum draft experience, which is very different from an eight person pod. So if I'm taking a powerful card from you, that can be as effective as getting a powerful card from my own deck. Uh, so I think what that leads me to do is see if you j- jump into a color really heavy, I will want to hate those cards from you and then at the end of the draft or somewhere along the way i might decide well you know i kind of have a bunch of powerful cards in. my picks from, yeah. from, from this other player yeah I, that's definitely possible i do think that if there's an open color there's a lot to be gained right even from just forcing your opponent to hate draft the really good cards in that color where they otherwise would take better cards for their deck so i don't know i still like staying open in a grid draft i'm on the center row though because dracula is exciting enough for me in a environment that has a lot of innistrad vibes going on that i want to try and build around it I agree. Thank you, 123JHD, for sending in your cube. If you want Anthony and I to crack a pack from your cube on air, send a link to your cube to mail at luckypaper.co with your name and your pronouns. Although, Anthony, maybe you will have a form also built by the time this episode comes out in two and a half weeks. I might have that built tonight. Okay, well, another thing to hold you accountable for. Check the show notes for a link to a form to submit your cube. Anthony, would you like to do me the honor of defining Baneslayer and Muldrifter as not the specific creatures they refer to, but instead the dichotomy that is often talked about in Magic? I can do my best. Uh, So Muldrifters are good cards and Baneslayers are bad cards, right? This is so often how (laughs) this comes up, both in Magic and Cube Design specifically. Magic at large and Cube Design specifically, you will hear people, from a card evaluation standpoint, use Baneslayer kind of as a derogatory term. It's like, oh, it's just a Baneslayer. I never hear that about Muldrifter. I never hear that's just a Muldrifter. Yeah, I've never heard that. Um, so uh, these are just sort of two... What's the word? Creatures. <laughs> so, Archetypes? Paradigms. Paradigms. Models. Examples. So these are just two sort of archetypal cards which are used to exemplify different features of how magic cards work, specifically how creatures work. Baneslayer being a creature that accrues value over time. You know, it's a big flyer with lifelink and it'll generate a lot of value and kill your opponent, but doesn't have a big impact, especially against removal if your opponent can remove it right away. Whereas Moldrifter is a creature that generates value immediately and actually fares very well against removal. I think that's a great way to put it. And uh, I, I don't often hear that angle of it where it's like the value of your five mana investment in Baneslayer is the four turns you get to brawl with it. And the value of your Muldrifter is largely the turn you cast it. And so it's a matter of like value over time versus value in one instant. I do want to read Patrick Chapin's definitions from next level deck building, just because I think this is the closest we have to a canonical definition of the terms. He defines a Baneslayer as a creature where the value is the creature itself. And a Muldrifter is a creature that gives you value outside of that creature. And obviously that creature, he means referring to the permanent, right? So uh, the actual permanent that's left on the battlefield, is that why you put this card in your deck? Is that the value of this card? Or is the value of something else? I think we can all agree in many contexts, a five mana 2-2 flyer is not worth the investment, right? So the value of Muldrifter is that it draws you two cards, largely. The value of Baneslayer Angels, of course, just that it's a card that you basically can't win in combat against in any kind of fair situation. Yeah, outside of some big giant green spider. I say not a dragon. Or a demon. Maybe a spider. As you alluded to, Baneslayer often used as a derogatory term for cards that people think are bad. And I, I think there is some truth in this, uh, which is that I think players, especially less experienced players, are much more likely to overrate a Baneslayer 
on power level than they are likely to overrate a mall drifter on power level. Which is to say, when it's spoiler season and Wizards of the Coast says, here's your new five mana 8-8 trample or whatever. Here's your new, you know, extremely pushed creature that has no end of the battlefield ability, but is just otherwise off the charts. Players will oftentimes be like, wow, this card is totally broken. It's incredible. It's the best five drop of all time. When in reality, it has that dies to Doomblade feature, right? Where in actual competitive play, if you're playing against opponents with interaction, it could be a five mana infinity elemental. And wait, is that how much infinity elemental costs? I don't even know. It could be a five mana creature with infinity power. And it's not going to matter in a lot of constructed contexts or even good limited contexts. Infinity elemental costs seven. <laughs> Apparently, I was wrong about the development of the Infinity Elemental. So I think that's where that comes from, is that because so many players are likely to overrate a Baneslayer, the countervailing force in the discourse is Baneslayers are bad, as in Baneslayers are worse than a lot of people think. Yeah, I think that in that sort of narrow context, I do see what you're saying. I think also creatures that we term Baneslayers also do have this relevant interaction with removal where whatever they do, you know, it can be stuff that, like you're saying, players can get really excited about and have this uh, really optimistic vision of the ceiling of what they can do. But against removal, they all behave exactly the same, which is that they die. For a long time, I consciously favored mall drifters in my cube design. My argument being that I wanted the game to be about this incremental advantage. I wanted to minimize kind of swingy blowouts, right? And when you look at the eponymous cards, Baneslayer, Angel, and Muldrifter, Baneslayer Angel is hugely swinging. Just on the scale of all magic cards in time, like I said, if it's in play and they don't have a removal spell, so few things are going to beat it in combat. You're basically going to win the game if it's unanswered. And conversely, if it's removed by a one or two mana removal spell, you are way down on tempo, you lost one of your best cards, you lost five mana you invested, and it's going to be hard to come back from that. So for that reason, for a really long time, I consciously favored Muldrifters. I was like, I'm trying to find good quote-unquote Muldrifters to put in my cube, and that was mostly what I was seeking when I was evaluating new cards from new sets and just thinking about cuts and additions I was going to make. Does this dichotomy cross your mind at all when you are thinking about your own cube and cards you're going to include or exclude. Yeah, I think about this a lot. But before that, do you actually think that Baneslayer is more swingy or does it just feel more swingy because it actually influences the game and demands an answer immediately? Whereas maybe someone casts a Mold Drifter and you lose the game four turns later to other effects and it doesn't feel like that was what swung the game. No, I think it is more swingy. Okay. I think in a game where a Baneslayer is cast, the caster has an extremely high chance to win if it is unanswered and an extremely low chance to win if it is answered. I think in a game where Muldrifter is cast, you get a much smaller bump in win percentage. So you go from like, if this thing sticks around, I get to win 95% of the time to like 55% of the time. And the floor of it getting removed is also much higher where it's like, okay, if it gets removed, I'm also still fine. It's a little incremental advantage. Like, I'm just picturing the advantage bar, right? When they have a Pro Tour coverage, which haven't had paper coverage in forever, but they used to have this thing, kids, called the advantage bar, where to help viewers that are maybe less enfranchised in the game, you know, in certain constructed formats, oftentimes the player that's winning is entirely unclear from looking at the board state or life totals. Well, you just look at life totals, yeah. Right, it's, it's really <laughs> unclear. So they have this advantage bar where the coverage team would subjectively, based on the information of cards in hand and stuff, point to who was currently advantaged. And I think when you have a Baneslayer Angel... If your opponent doesn't have removal, they would take that advantage bar and swing it all the way to the top. They would say, this person has now two turns to find removal or they are dead. And conversely, if you play a Baneslayer Angel and they're just sitting on a Doomblade, then yeah, I think that advantage bar doesn't move, doesn't budge. It's like that you you didn't get helped at all. Yeah. So I, I like to think about this a lot, just in cube design specifically, as what are the actual effects that these different types of creatures have on the game? And even if in a lot of contexts, let's say we have a very high removal environment, maybe a five mana creature that will die to a two mana removal spell isn't super powerful, but that's not what I'm trying to analyze when I'm designing the cube. You know, it's important that those interactions come up, but I'm not making the same evaluation as saying this card is inappropriate for this environment because it is not very powerful. Because I actually often want removal to be relevant and I want to have that tension of is it worth playing this creature that will have a big impact if my opponent doesn't have removal? And it create also that uh, interaction in games of deciding how do I force my opponent to run out of removal and, and sort of like trick them into spending all their removal spells so that I can stick this Bane Slayer and cause it to, to win games. I think all of that is super interesting and fun and adds to the texture of different kinds of games. I agree with all of that. I guess my point of my question of like, do you think about Bane Slayers and Muldrifters when you're making cuts and additions to your cube? 
you frame Baneslayer as a Muldrift, which is kind of being everything, right? Because it touches all these different aspects of the game. So you're like, of course, I think about all these interactions when I make changes to my cube. What I mean is like, do you favor one over the other in general? Do you say, I only want X number of Baneslayers. And so if I'm going to put another one in, I'm going to cut one. Do you think in any of those kinds of terms? Or is it just that this is an abstraction you can use to understand the game? And you're, of course, thinking about the game when you're changing your cube around. I would say I, I don't think about it in that concrete nature of like, what is the proportion that's relevant? Although I am aware that in my the current state of my cube, I'm I'm higher on mole drifters than I want to be, especially like creatures that make tokens and stuff like that, where some of the removal feels a little bit underpowered currently. So the reason I wanted to talk about this topic is because lately, and I say lately, let's say the last two years, I have not been thinking about this dichotomy at all when I am making changes to my cube. It just has not been on the map. I'm not thinking at all about what's a Baneslayer or a Mold Drifter. I'm thinking about other features, which I'll get to later on. And in the like two years that I've been like updating my cube and maintaining things and not really thinking about this, I only recently noticed that I have trended so hard away from Mold Drifters and into Baneslayer territory. If you look at my list now, I've cut so many things that are Mold Drifters. I think I had this realization when I was thinking about Soul Herder because I saw a video of Soul Herder seeing play in Modern. And I was like, this is interesting interaction. I wonder if this could be viable in my cube, even though I don't really like the card Soul Herder. And I have so few things that Soul Herder gets value off of blinking because I have so few quote-unquote mold drifters these days. I want to unpack this a little bit. And the first thing I think here is that I think Baneslayers get a bad rap because of the cards chosen to represent these archetypes. Right? If we're talking about actual Baneslayer and actual mold drifter, those are two five-mana cards. I think a five-mana card is already a pretty narrow card to include in your deck. And I think at five mana, the considerations of what is the difference between a Baneslayer and a Muldrifter are way different than they are at different spots on the mana curve. That's definitely true. I mean, it, it is an interesting challenge that if we want to use examples to typify some kind of mechanic or some kind of attribute of a card, we are also committing to talking about individual cards. And that's going to color possibly negatively the way that we think about those concepts right so like i do dislike the card baneslayer angel i would have a hard time i did put it in the jessica control battle box because that's exactly what i want to have in that environment is like six mana five mana threats you just have to stick to survive but in my own cubes i would never put a card like that in because i i don't like the play patterns of the literal card baneslayer angel i, I think mall drifter is broadly overrated by magic players but I, I don't dislike the play patterns i think it's fine i like that it's modal i like that it draws cards i much prefer the play patterns of Muldrifter to Baneslayer Angel, power level completely aside. But that really changes for me when you go down the mana curve. And so, Anthony, what I want to propose is a complementary, a new lens on thinking about Baneslayers versus Muldrifters, which I'm calling Tarmogoyce versus Elvish Visionaries. It's the same thing. It's exactly the same. It's the same thing. Is it thing. exactly the same thing? Well, it's the same thing, but I think players think more favorably of a card like Tarmogoyf than they do of a card like Baneslayer Angel. And I think Elvish Visionary, when you really unpack it, is not as exciting to most players because it's a two-mana 1-1. One, one. And sure, it draws a card, but it's just kind of replacing itself. And is the two-mana 1-1 one, one even worth a card in your environment? Or is it essentially just a cantrip with some additional value? I think it's just the same dichotomy, but when you start talking about it from this different angle, that sheds a whole new light on this conversation around where the value is accrued and what the cards are actually doing in your environment. So you just want to sort of eliminate the factor that maybe as cube designers, we don't think about five mana spells in the same light as we do two mana spells, where we do actually often see the value of, you know, efficient threats and cards to generate value over time on cheap cards. Right, for sure. And I, I do think at exactly two mana, I can imagine somebody listening saying that, well... At two mana, it does. It's irrelevant now because uh, you know removal will, won't be efficient against a two mana threat ever. To which I say, there's a lot of one mana removal out there in Magic's history that is really efficient against a two mana threat. It is only one mana difference, but it's also a hundred percent mana difference, right? It's half the cost of a threat that was played. I think it's similar in terms of overall value to answering a four drop with with a Doom Blade, right? And so there is still very efficient removal over two drops. So I think that that aspect of that conversation is still very valid at this point on the mana curve. I mean, it also has to be said that the removal that is available in cube is whatever we want it to be. So you have full control to just say, yeah, I want all, all removal to be five mana because I like Baneslayer and I would like it to perform in a certain way. Sounds awful. <laughs> Says the guy that wanted to grid draft burn the accursed. I mean, it sounds awful to play in an environment <laughs> where all the removal is five mana. Not that uh, burn the accursed is necessarily a card I do not want to play with. I mentioned that I was looking at different features of cards and not thinking about this Baneslayer, Muldrifter, 
debacle when I was making changes to my cube over the past couple of years. And one of the things I was fiercely focused on was mana value and just trying to find more cheaper cards that players could win the game with, right? I find it so much more fun and interesting and dynamic to win the game with a two drop, maybe a three drop, than I do to slam the door with a five, six, seven drop and just say, now the game is over. We've talked about this briefly in the past, but what it comes down to is that when you play a seven mana card and win the game off the back of it, it kind of doesn't matter what that card does. Like the actual texture of playing with that card is kind of irrelevant. That card just said, win the game most of the time and the game is over in a turn or two. Like you don't even really get to play with Ugin the Spirit Dragon that much, right? <laughs> you cast it and most of the time your opponent scoops. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, yep, you get to, maybe you get to board wipe once and your opponent has a glimmer of hope and then you play something else on the next turn. Then they scoop. Like it's a card that you get to cast. Do you get to play with it? I, I don't know if you get to play with it that much. By contrast, if you win the game off the back of a uh, Grim Flayer or a uh, or Ragavan, I, I will I will bring up even the the most cursed one drop. The game is shaped by that card in a much more dynamic way. The decisions you were making throughout the entire course of the game were about this card, which I think is a much more interesting way to play the game rather than the decisions being about gosh, I sure hope I draw my big threat, or gosh, I sure hope my opponent doesn't draw their big threat. How is that distinct to this question more than just you prefer cheap cards? Like, isn't that just you saying that you enjoy having a low curve in your cube? Yes, that's exactly what it is. Okay. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. I'm just saying I like low mana value cards in my cube. That's what I've been thinking about with all of my cube changes over the past couple of years. But the result is that I've added a lot of quote-unquote Bane Slayers at low mana value and really enjoyed those play patterns because having a powerful two-drop that could potentially snowball and take over the game, having a Grim Flayer that could be a two-mana 4-4, four, four, having a Tarmogoyf that can be a two-mana 5-6 or 6-7 or something really makes for more interesting games to me than just sitting around waiting for your you know five and six drops to start deciding the game later on. I've also been a vocal critic of a specific type of Muldrifter-driven gameplay in the past that I didn't even really notice at the time is what I was being critical of. We've talked in the show about how in some pauper cubes, the cube is just full of essentially Elvish Visionaries, right? It's got Elvish Visionary, it's got the Inspiring Overseer and the one that doesn't fly but also gains a life and tons of Gravedigger variants. I think the official pauper cube for a long time had like six Gravedigger variants in it. And a Gravedigger is definitely a Muldrifter, right? You're paying four mana for a 2-2, two -two, really below rate. The value is you're also getting a creature back from your graveyard. And what I've really disliked about the play patterns of environments that are full of those cards is, okay, you play your Elvish Visionary, you draw a card. What do you draw? You draw another overcosted creature, right? A card that costs more mana than its body is worth in the given environment that you then draw another card with. Or you're just churning through Gravediggers where you Gravedigger and then you chump block and then you Gravedigger back your Gravedigger and then you chump block again. So... What ultimately I think drives a lot of people towards the Muldrifter thing is the idea of drawing more cards with your Muldrifter is exciting because those cards could be anything. Drawing cards is fundamentally fun. It's like the way that magic injects variance into the game and it makes it fun, which is I think one of the great successes of magic. The excitement there is greatly diminished when most of what you're drawing is just more dinky little Muldrifters. And I think that the Muldrifters feel extra bad at low mana values because you're like, okay, I just got a 1-1. One, one. This is like nothing. It's not a thing. I'm going to chump block with it. Maybe I'll get it for a damage or two. If I'm really lucky, I'll trade. That would be incredible. But I'm oftentimes in an environment like this that's full of those kinds of cards, just trading for another Baleful Strix or whatever. Then it's like, okay, we're all just, we're just taking game actions to like slowly grind this game and just prolong it to like play these games where you're on turn six and you're still playing with these under-costed bodies. You're still playing with two-twos basically. I mean, I like playing with two-twos. I think a Grizzly Bear is a great magic card. Grizzly Bear is better than Elvish Visionary from play pattern perspective, I think, in a lot of situations. The other thing I've been trying to do in my cube is really cut down on those kind of sloggy, long games. I think Muldrifter-style cards are perhaps almost entirely to blame for these sloggy, grindy games that some players really enjoy. And if you really enjoy them, then I would say play as many Muldrifters as you possibly can. But for me... I don't like taking a bunch of game actions that I feel like I do not have any agency over. And when my deck just involves playing a bunch of cheap creatures that draw cards or cheap creatures that accrue other value that doesn't involve making decisions like targeting things, it's just, you know, if something that happens automatically, I gain life, I get to flicker something or whatever. Just taking those game actions uh, is not what I'm interested in magic for. And so when you play these two mana cards or three mana cards that are really undercosted, where the, the body you're getting is much more relevant than the comparable things on that mana curve, now all of a sudden, everything matters. Everything becomes important. Whether your opponent has that removal spell really, really matters. And 
Sure, sometimes removing a Muldrifter is the right move. You, you do Blade a Muldrifter, you shock a Muldrifter, it happens sometimes. Sometimes it's correct to do that. But that's never a, a tense moment, right? It's never a moment where like your strategy truly revolves around that because that value has, again, already been accrued. So basically, I didn't even consciously realize I had been just getting away from Muldrifters for so long because of these types of play patterns they lead to. These grindy games, these idea of playing with much smaller creatures at different turns than you could otherwise be playing with, even like vanilla creatures, right? Like there's something more exciting to me about a four mana, four, four trample than just playing a four drop that is a two, two that draws a card or whatever, like a grave digger. It's just the tempo of the game totally changes and tempo matters. I mean, honestly, I think that playing a lot of these Muldrifter cards really makes tempo a lot less relevant to the entire game. It becomes about value. Who's going to out Muldrifter the other person and finally have enough two twos to attack through and start to have favorable combat. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that board states can naturally just get into the situation where players can't really attack. Combat doesn't matter as much. And those kinds of cards do kind of put you into those those kinds of stalls. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just important to know what kind of gameplay you're looking for and interested no, in. Like I said, some people really like, here's a giant puzzle. We some both people have, love that. Yeah. James is really into that. He's uh-huh. a sick freak. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, some people really like that. There's like 12 things in play and they want to navigate the puzzle of like, how do I actually, when can I attack? That's a fun question for them to answer. For me, that feels like accounting. It's like, I will know if I figure, if I sit down and actually like, I can figure out what the right answer is. It's just work to do so. It's not, it's not strategy. It's just actual work to figure out what things are. I don't like having big board states where it's easy to miss something and then you feel like you just punted and that's not a fun feeling. So yeah, I agree. It's entirely a matter of taste. It's interesting to me that for my own taste, I have just totally made a big hard left turn at some point, which ultimately meant way fewer mall drifters and way more Bane Slayers. I didn't even consciously realize it. I've been sort of scrolling through my own cube, and it it, it is interesting that I, I feel like I, maybe I should do some tagging and try and do this a little bit more formally, but it does look like my two drops and you know other cheap cards are definitely on the Baneslayer side. They are creatures that need to attack or need to have some spell triggers or some other interaction to start generating value, whereas as you go up the mana curve, the three and four mana creatures often do have Enter the Battlefield abilities. I wonder if that's something that is sort of been unconsciously something that I've been thinking about, or maybe it's something that's just implicit in the way that cards tend to be designed. Yeah. I mean, I think Elvish Visionary is a well-balanced card. I don't think it would be good if you made it much worse, and I don't think it would be... I don't think it would be fair if you made it any better. Like, if it was a 2-1 that cantrip, that would be kind of disgusting. So, yeah, I think that card's well-balanced. I just like Muldrifter is well-balanced, but if you look at those two cards, it's definitely more exciting and fun to play with Muldrifter, and it makes more sense to spend your five mana and not get blown out, right? What you're going to do at two mana is never, is inherently never going to be as swingy as what can happen at five mana once the game gets to that stage. For sure, yeah. So my last note here is just that having a bunch of Muldrifters in an environment, I think leads to tons of things not being important anymore. Your creatures are kind of no longer important. You already got the value off of them. Now you have a bunch of disposable creatures in play. And that can actually be really cool if you have archetypes that are designed around that, like having Muldrifter style cards at one and two mana for your Aristocrats deck awesome love that like if you have a soul herder sure soul herder like if, if you have a, a deck designed around these kinds of cards and that's an archetype thing great uh if not then you just basically kind of made your creatures irrelevant and when your creatures are irrelevant then combat is kind of irrelevant and removal spells and where they get pointed is much less relevant all of the importance of the decisions you make in the game just get kind of muted a little bit when there's just all of this accrued value and everything is just cantripping and replacing itself and getting value outside of the card that was cast which I think in too high of a density leads to these very, they're actually kind of, they feel like deterministic games. I'm not sure if they are. I I can't say for sure that they are more deterministic than any other kind of game of magic, but they certainly feel like I took a bunch of actions and I just didn't draw my good cards or whatever. And my opponent outvalued me. They don't, they oftentimes don't feel like you have as much autonomy over them. So I'll say that I do think I enjoy that sometimes more than you do. Uh, Like I enjoy the occasional game that has that kind of feel, but I would say a big difference for me is sometimes those games can just feel like there's a slow inevitability. Like I'm yes. behind. I'm pretty sure I'm losing this game. Like but I'm 30, 70, sure. but I, I'm, yeah. I'm supposed to play to that 30%. Because Whereas, yeah, it's not like I need a removal spell now. Let's like, let's get through this game. I'll draw two cards, see if we get there or not. It's like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to lose, but let's take another four turns where we each make sapperlings. I mean, that's just fun. Everybody likes making sapperlings, obviously, Everybody. Uh, but it can, it can definitely have that sort of inevitability, but not certainty and take a lot of time to resolve. Yeah. So really, like, instead of making sure that my, like, four, five, and six drops were all Muldrifters, I basically have none left. I have so few four, five, and six drops in my cube. They are Muldrifters, to be fair, pretty much all of them. But 
I'm really focused on, especially the two and three mana slot are like the two places where I'm really trying to focus the design energy in my cube. That, those are the cards that I want to shape the games and be the deciding factor in games because they are more powerful, more dynamic. They can do more things than your average one drop, but you're not losing games because because your relevant cards are stuck in your hand because you didn't find your fifth land or whatever. You get to play these cards every game that you draw them and the games therefore have this kind of back and forth and dynamic nature that I'm really enjoying. So if I had to summarize my current approach, I'm not just playing Baneslayers over everything. I do definitely still have some Muldrifters. I've added a couple Muldrifters recently. I put Eternal Witness back in my cube. So I'm not entirely off of them completely, but I am definitely conscious that as my goals have changed and I've wanted to go lower on the curve and also avoid long drawn out games, Baneslayers do that really effectively, right? They're, they're great cards, I think, at lower points on the, on, on the curve, and they also just help games be decided, right? Like, your decisions, what you, how you drafted, whether you mulliganed or not, is going to really matter when, by turn three or four, your opponent is threatening to kill you with something, as opposed to, by turn three or four, you're both at 16 because you've been chipped in with some damage, and you both have a Baleful Strix and a Inspiring Overseer in play, and you've just kind of both... The game is still not really like in some ways you're just kind of delaying the actual game. I feel like in those cases where it's like the decisions we're going to make, we're going to punt those for a while. First, we're going to play this game where we both just accrue linear value for a while, and then later on we'll make decisions about stuff. Interesting. I don't know. I I, I see that that is part of the game as well, and there's like there's a lot of opportunities for interesting decisions in how you set yourself up for that kind of momentum. But I also see your point that it does. Uh, maybe just take longer. I mean, it takes longer to get to the kinds of decisions that you're personally interested in making. Yeah, and again, it's, it's totally subjective there. Like, again, some people really love the big board states. Some people love long games. Some people, I think, really love making the 51, 49% decisions, right? Where it's like, I really care right. about like finding this little small edge. That's where I want to flex my skill and win the game. I'm much more interested in like having fewer 60, 40 decisions, right? Where like the decision is much more important and it's a little more obvious what's right or wrong, uh, but figuring it out, it actually really matters as opposed to like, you could be wrong on tons of 51, 49 decisions and it won't actually affect you in percentage that much. I want those decisions to actually immediately, like directly lead to my, to the outcomes in games in my own environment, totally subjectively. Fair enough. I do want to talk about near Bane Slayers, uh, which I think is one of my favorite categories of cards. Patrick Japin in his book, Next Level Deck Building does expand this model to include things like trolls and titans and other kinds of archetypal creatures none of those are as sticky because most people don't know what they are so i'm not going to like try and fit these in the, in the model but there's a lot of cards i think that fit in this space of like sometimes they're bane slayers sometimes they're mold drifters and you kind of have control over that and i think one of the best examples is just young pyromancer a young pyromancer on turn two is a bane slayer the value of that card is that creature you are not getting any value immediately off of it unless you have a getactin probe or whatever in hand if you play that without the ability to immediately follow up with the spell you've essentially played a, played a Bane Slayer. If you wait until you have three mana and play your young Pyromancer with Lightning Bolt up so you can immediately always get that 1-1 one, one out of it, you've essentially turned that Bane Slayer into a Moldrifter now, where it's always going to come with that 1-1. One, one. That's the like immediate value you're going to get no matter what. And that question of, do I play my young Pyromancer on turn two in this matchup, or do I play it on turn three with, with holding up a spell? That's a really interesting decision for me to make. I definitely agree that's an interesting decision, but now you're making me wonder, is Baneslayer not a Baneslayer if I wait a turn and then have an Expedite in hand? Great question. This is how this is how this conversation devolves. This is why <laughs> this is why uh, we've not talked about this in the show for for a long time. Because yeah, these are these are imperfect buckets, right? Right. I mean, we can talk about value over time is one bucket, value immediately is another bucket, and then if we want to talk about Titans being they do both. These are clear definitions, but context really does matter and changes the way that cards play. And that's really what makes them fun. So it, to say like every card must be one of these two things and it is cleanly going to fit in that category, that's just not really a useful way to use these terms. Right. To answer your question more honestly, I think if you have a deck whose strategy is to play Baneslayer Angel and have Expedites in there to give it haste and attack, then in that deck, Baneslayer Angel is not a Baneslayer Angel anymore, really. It's a it's a card you're trying to make a Drifter. It's a fast Baneslayer Angel. <laughs> very fast Baneslayer Angel. So I, I think Young Pyromancer is like a great example. It's a very canonical card. A lot of people know, a lot of people enjoy playing with, where I think a lot of the joy of that card is that the value can be on either end, right? You can play it as just a creature and hope that it sticks around so you can get the value out of it later, or you can play it and immediately get the value and be a little safer with your lines. And getting to choose based on the exact game state, the exact matchup, the exact hand you have, which of those is, is better for you at this moment is very satisfying to me. Rather than, you know, just having to run out your Tarmogoy for just run out your 
Mold Drifter or whatever and see what happens. A couple of the cards that fit into this category. I think one of the most elegant Bane Slayer or Mold Drifter cards in recent history is Briar Bridge Tracker. This is that three mana two three that comes with a clue token. And as long as you control a token, it gets plus two plus oh. It's got Vigilance too. So if you just play and ignore that clue token for a while, you've gotten a three mana four three Vigilance. That's a great Bane Slayer. That's a above rate body that is going to brawl really well. It's going to put a lot of pressure on your opponent. And if you're in a situation where that's actually not what you want right now, what you need is a Mold Drifter, you just draw that card with it. You crack that clue, and now you've gotten value out of that body immediately by drawing a card and replacing itself. And getting to just choose when you want which one is really valuable. That particular card's great because you can let it be a Bane Slayer for as long as it matters until it trades in combat or eats a removal spell, and then still get the value off of it later. Yeah, I mean, that kind of reminds me of a feature that I really love about limited and you know magic in general is those environments those spaces where you're not definitely an aggro or control deck it's kind of like this mid-range matchup where it changes and depending on the individual matchup or even the individual game state the hands you draw you're trying to navigate am i the beatdown in this game or not and this is kind of similar where how are, how are you going to get the value out of this creature are you the beatdown now are you in a situation where you could be the aggressor or are you trying to slow down the game and accrue value yeah so I think cards that can play both sides of that coin, even if like I do still really push very aggressive decks that always want to be the aggressor and very slow decks that always want to be playing reactive, I have a much broader spread of that in my own cube. But even in that situation, it means that these cards can play both sides, right? Like you can play Young Pyromancer in your control deck. And what you're trying to do there is play it on turn four or five, have a couple spells ready. So you can make a bunch of blockers and hopefully even trading with their aggressive threats or whatever, just buy you a bunch of time. There's not a lot of other cards that I think are red two drops that you're pretty happy to put in your aggressive deck and also pretty happy to put in your control deck. And that's what that's the, the value of these really flexible cards. My last new favorite one in this category is Ledger Shredder, which I think fits into this category for all the same reasons the other, the other two cards do. Again, if you play it on turn two, that the value of that card is, is that's your Bane Slayer, right? You're just trying to let this card stick and go the distance. You just want to put a bunch of counters on and start attacking. But you do get that surveil along the way. So again, you can still play this on turn three and immediately cast another spell. And now even if they have a lightning bolt and they kill it in response to that surveil trigger, you still got something out of that card. So again, you have that option to play both sides of the coin. So in my main cube, which is pretty low power, just to talk about why context matters, I do have Moldrifter in. And how powerful do you think that is in that environment? Hmm. I think it's pretty good. I think in your environment, aggro is not a thing that's going to there's always a fastest deck at the table. I think the archetypes that you've tried to make the fastest, most proactive archetypes don't always show up in, in every single draft. They're kind of a sometimes food. Compared to my cube where aggro is always food. Aggro is maybe half the pod is aggro kind of food in my own environment. So because of that, I do value cards that are going to win a long game higher in your cube than I would certainly in a cube like mine. And I think among the cards that can win a long game, Maldrifter is one of the better ones in your environment. Yeah. So how good do you think Baneslayer would be in my cube, which is not in there? I think it'd be really good. I think it'd be insane. I think it'd be really good. We, we both, in both of our cubes, really lean into cheap conditional removal. So we really like the stuff that will do two damage to a creature, the disfigures of the world, the portable holes of the world, because it allows you to interact, but also keeps the game from turning into this like back and forth of threat, answer, threat, answer, threat, answer, when you can't answer everything with those removal spells. So... I would guess there's actually probably not that many removal spells in your cube that could remove a Baneslayer Angel. Like maybe 15% of all the removal in your cube could potentially get, deal with it. And certainly nothing in your cube is brawling with Baneslayer Angel. I don't, I can't imagine any no reasonable board state where you are ever going to beat a Baneslayer Angel that sticks. Yeah, I just think that's interesting that in this particular context, like Muldrifter is pretty good, but it's not breaking the environment open. But Baneslayer, I think, would be really overpowered because context matters. It's also the kind of card where like, would it be overpowered if we started looking at win percentages across a thousand drafts? Maybe, but the games that we win would feel awful. It'd be like, oh, great. Uh, I guess nothing I did at all mattered until turn five when you played Baneslayer Angel and my deck has no answers to it. So GG's, I guess nothing I do matters in this matchup at all. And that feeling would make it feel overpowered, even if it didn't actually mean by the numbers, time shoving supercomputer style, it would be a like problem in terms of win percentage. Right. There could be just as many games where you just don't hit your fifth land or whatever else could happen. That means that right. didn't actually win you the game. And in those situations, you'd be right to look at it and say, this card is not that good and have like a strong reaction to it. But that's not a conversation you're likely to have at the table. You're not going to be like, ah, this card is so awful. That's why I lost <laughs> the game. You're just going to attribute that to mana screw, not Bane Slayer Angel being a, a liability. Right. 
Interesting question. Bane Star Angel in your cube. I definitely wouldn't like it there. I'll tell you that much. We can give it a try. Special guest special for the next guest. draft. I do like the idea of putting special guests in. To close this episode, Anthony, I've prepared a top five. It's the top five Bane Slayers I have added to my cube in the past 12 months. Went through all of my changes only in the past year and found the top five creatures that fall into this Bane Slayer category that I am most excited about in my own cube environment. Do you want to guess any of them? Should I just go five to one? What do you think? I will just guess Ledger Shredder. How about that? I have that in the near Bane Slayer category, okay. so I did not include that in this list. This is These are like undeniably, well, one of them you could maybe argue is a little bit deniably, but they're pretty much undeniably Bane Slayers. No one would argue otherwise. So number five is a card you love. We both love this card. Knight of the Reliquary. That is totally a Bane Slayer. You have to untap to get any activated ability value off of it. But in my cube, you're oftentimes just playing this as a three mana five five, a three mana six six, a three mana six six that threatens to get bigger as the game goes on, or go get a really powerful utility land. I think that card's great. I'm really excited about it, and definitely a Bane Slayer. What about Bedlam Reveler? That was something you added recently, right? That's for sure a Moldrifter, though. Oh right, yeah. That one literally draws okay. three cards. Yeah, I'm so. just trying to think too hard about what's <laughs> what's what's in your cube. <laughs> So Night of the Reliquary is my number five. My number four, Tossiger the Golden Fang. That's a one mana four, four, yeah, baby. That's, that's a full that's on. That's a Tarmogoyf. Now, the here you Slayer. could argue, if you really wanted to stretch it, like maybe there are situations where you can play it and hold up the four mana activation to get value immediately. I've never seen it happen. I don't think it's at all common in my cube. It's going to be in a surpassingly small number of games. I think this is a, a full on Bane Slayer and one I really, really love. I love the Delve ones, especially because it makes you work for it you don't just get it i think it's part of what people don't like about bane slayer angel you just pay five mana and you just get it right like there was nothing your deck had to do to make that work other than just survive to your fifth land drop a card like tossiger is going to vary in power level pretty dramatically based on the deck you've drafted and how quickly you can enable delve to make this card a huge threat all right i have a new goal for myself for your cube i want to play and activate tossiger in the same turn i will give you a little plaque great this is me committing to that on the to air. <laughs> hold you to it. My number three is maybe closer to arguably not a full-on Bane Slayer, but it's Lion Sash, our new white scavenging ooze reconfigure equipment card. Yes, you can play it and have white mana up and exile a card from a graveyard. In my environment, without like reanimator and stuff, I think the value of exiling a single card on the turn you play Lion Sash or maybe two cards if you have three white mana available total, it's not that high, actually. It's like not going to really be worth much. So... I don't see this at all as a uh, as a Mull Drifter. I see it as a Baneslayer. This is a two-mana card that will take over the game and accrue a lot of value if you don't answer it, and that's why I like it. Yeah, I mean, that ability in your environment is really just about making the creature better, which, if we go back to the definition of saying, is it about the creature or what it did for you? This is about the creature. It's about the creature, baby. My number two favorite Baneslayer angel I've added in the last 12 months, Sprite Dragon. I love this card. I love it so much does have haste. Yeah, I was going to say, that seems like a little bit of a stretch then. <laughs> it does have haste. I just remembered it has haste, which kind of, you know, okay, maybe it's not as much of a Bane Slayer. Uh, maybe that one's... These like, are your top four Bane Slayers. <laughs> like, sure. This is my top four Bane Slayers and, the, and a special guest, Sprite Dragon, which would be number two if you could argue... I forgot it had haste. I mean, I knew it had haste, but I forgot that that kind of takes it out of the Bane Slayer category. Anyway, Sprite Dragon's great. Everyone should play Sprite Dragon if you like cheap spells. You could definitely guess my number one. I believe you can do it. Your confidence is so high. Can I cheat? You can look at my cube list. Don't look at the don't look at the edits though. Don't like go through the blog post and try and find in the last 12 months. Just look at the actual list. Is it Yuriko the Tiger's Shadow? Murktide Regent. Oh, Murktide Regent. I even of course, said yeah. Delve creatures yeah. are some of my favorite Bane Slayers. Murktide Regent, first of all, this card is unimpeachably powerful. Whether you like it or not, right? It's shaking up modern, shaking up legacy. It's a huge player in both those metagames right now. I have not seen anybody call for the banning of Murktide Regent or complain about Murktide Regent because it is still just a Bane Slayer, right? Like the response is run removal spells. Like don't just rely on Lightning Bolt or uh, Prismatic Ending as your removal if you're going to come up against Murktide Regents. It's great. I love it. And it's just a big, dumb dragon. That's all it is. It's just a big vanilla flyer, essentially. It gets a little bigger later on if you exile more stuff, but it doesn't do anything else. And the amount of joy that I've had from just playing with a big, dumb dragon that you can play on turn three with only two lands in play or whatever, it's been a total delight. 
I mean, I love big dumb dragons. I don't like how quickly this one comes down and how hard it is to get rid of. Yeah. You don't have to like it. Yeah, you definitely don't have to like it. It's uh, it's definitely a, a swingy card. It can be very powerful, but it's the kind of swingy card that I like, right? Because here you had to work to make it swingy. You don't just get the Murktide region on turn three or four or five without working for it a little bit, which I think makes the trade-off worth it. Like, if it does immediately eat a Doomblade or whatever, you're down quite a bit. Like, you're not only down your big creature, but you did chop your entire graveyard, which is going to make your next Delve spell harder to cast. It's going to make your Snapcaster Mage and your Grim Lava Mancer worse. You are paying something for that upside. I'm so shocked at how fun it's been to play with just a big dumb dragon. I remember in spoiler season, I was like, this card seems good, but it's just a big dumb dragon. Why would I want a big dumb dragon? And it's like, because a big dumb dragon is fun. That's great. I love it. I love that for you. Do you not enjoy playing with Murktide Region in my cube? You know, I don't know if I've actually played it in your cube yet. We, you played it on stream on my cube. Oh, that's possible. Yeah. I Did it get Doombladed? Probably. No, I think you won some games with it. Okay, then yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's the top five Bane Slayers I've added to my cube in the past year. I'm really going to be spreading this Tarmogoyf Elvish Visionary dichotomy. Because I think it will stop people from thinking of these as like good versus bad. Which, like you said, so many people do think of it that way. Tarmogoyf is a good card, so you're not going to assume the Tarmogoyf is bad. And I think it really contextualizes how much this Baneslayer, Moldrifter argument or whatever, this like the way people use these terms and throw them around, is really based on the fact that you're talking about five mana cards when you're talking about Baneslayer and Moldrifter. And if you're trying to use that language to describe two drops or three drops, I think it falls apart a little bit. I don't know, though. I think uh, I think Tarmogoyf is bad, didn't you hear? No, who said Tarmogoyf's bad? Everybody. What do you mean? Tarmogoyf's good. Is it relevant in modern anymore? No. Do you see all the cards they printed in Great. Modern Horizons yep. 2? Modern Horizons 2 was disgusting. That's like 40% of the whole metagame right now. It's just Modern Horizons 2. It's still a good card. I like I like Tarmogoyf. I want more people in our playgroup to take Tarmogoyf and play it in uh, in my cube. Just got to do. Next draft, do a little speech. Take Tarmogoyf. Even if you're not even doing that much to enable it, your opponent is almost guaranteed to be doing it, right? Like in my cube, one of you is going to put a fetch land into a graveyard in the first two turns, invariably. And spells are going to get cast on both sides of the table. It's just, it's going to be big. Okay, how about this as alternative scale? Nessian Horn Beetle and Pollen Bright Druid. Classic cards everyone knows and loves. Very iconic, Anthony. Mm-hmm. I, I like that too. You know, we can try both and see which one gets a little more traction. Vote for your favorite scale. <laughs> I will put a Twitter poll up when uh, when this episode goes live. Oh, I love Nessian Horn Beetle. What a great little guy. We're recording a little bit in advance, Anthony, but if I did my math right, I think this episode will come out with only 10 weeks remaining to KubeCon, which I am very excited about. Come to Wisconsin and play some magic with Anthony and I if you'd like. Also got to give a shout out to Mikey the Beagle. Mikey, hope you're riding in the car right now. Hope you had a good time down at the beach or whatever. You're a good boy. All her music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. The show is produced by me realizing that Actually, I've just been cutting Maldrifters from my cube left and right like a madman, and I can't be stopped for the past 24 months, and then talking to Anthony about it. We recorded a podcast. It wasn't that awful, right? No, it was, it was great. You don't sound like you think it